Hello and welcome back to Parallel Passion. First off, I'd like to sincerely thank everyone who continues to support this show on Patreon. You're the best. If you wish to join these awesome people, go to patreon.com slash or follow the link in the show notes. Thank you so much. I also have an ask for the entire audience. If you know anyone that would be an interesting guest to have on this show, please let me know. My mailbox is always open for awesome people's suggestions. Thank you. Today, I'm joined by Steph Smith. She's a chemical engineer that found her way to marketing and then the maker's world, and then she learned to code. She's a digital nomad, writes a lot, and loves building new products, so much so that she was nominated for the Product Hound's Maker of the Year. We dive into all of that, so I won't keep you waiting. Here's Steph. Hi, Steph. Welcome to Parallel Passion. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Uh, how are you? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? I'm I'm good. Uh, I'm I'm happy to have you on. Like I did some uh, research on you, and turns out you do a lot of things. <laughs> I I do try. Were you were you always like this, or this like uh, a recent uh, discovery of yours, or uh, I don't know how I should say like? It's a it's a good question. So I think I've always been curious, and I've never really, you know, some people feel like they have one calling or or one thing that they really need to pursue. I'm a little more scatterbrained than that. And I just find a lot of things interesting. So I've always kind of had that attribute, but more recently and recent in, in terms of maybe the last two years or so, uh, where I've really been able to kind of unlock that. So I always had these interests, but to be honest, until the last couple of years, I wasn't really pursuing them. Um, and I think it was mostly just like a limiting belief that like, you know, I graduated university years ago, then I'm going to go on to like do this career that's just like a reality of life and, and I need to be okay with that. And then a couple years ago, I went remote and then that unlocked a lot more of my time and, and freedom. And then as I started to play around with that, I was like, wow, I, I can have a career, but I can also learn to code and mm -hmm. create these projects and I can start writing. And, you know, it just, it was kind of like an evolution. It didn't happen in one step, but there was kind of a a point in the last couple of years where I started to almost recognize that I didn't need to limit myself into, you know, one or two um, paths. And so, like I said, I'd, al I'd always been curious, but really more recently is when I've been able to play around with a lot more of those passions of mm. mine. Yeah, interesting. And and before we go into exploring any of the uh, all of the passions, I should say, uh, can you give also like a, a quick intro of like who are you and like what do you what do you do? Yeah, so I guess by trade, uh, at least these days, I'm a marketer um, or I work in marketing. So I spent a couple of years at a company called TopTal. I started on their growth team and then ended up leading the publications team. Uh, just actually last month, I ended up uh, transitioning to a company called The Hustle. Most people know them for their daily email, but I'm actually uh, working, I guess my title is a senior analyst, but I'm working on their new product called Trends, mm -hmm. which is exactly as it sounds. It's about spotting trends um, before they happen so people can uh, create businesses before most people um, catch on or people can invest in businesses or really just you know stay on top of uh, what maybe uh, the bulk of the population doesn't know about. So that's what I do as um, my full-time job. But in addition to that, uh, in I guess early 2018, I started learning to code and use that really to, again, kind of play around with some of my passions, things I care about, like women in tech or remote work. And I started to create different projects. Um, and I say projects because most of them aren't really, you know, full scale in any uh, dimension in mm -hmm. terms of like a product that um, I'm currently monetizing, but I'm having a lot of fun with that. And then on top of that, uh, I write for my personal blog and it's about a lot of the similar topics that I just mentioned. So remote work, technology, continuous improvement. Um, and that's actually gone pretty well. I launched that in January. And actually, as of this week, over uh, 300,000 people have read it. So oh, that's wow. pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm doing a bunch of things, but those are really the three main things that I've, uh, I guess I've been doing these days. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And we will discuss all of them and more, I think. But uh, <laughs> I want like I, I did watch one of your talks where you say you are a chemical engineer uh, by like profession or like you studied that. Mm -hmm. How does one go from chemical engineering to marketing and and learning to code? Like what what brought you to like I guess this side of the yeah um, the world or the the market? I don't know how I should say even. It's a good question, and I actually still love pure science, and I really enjoyed my degree, um, but. Chemical engineering 
at least, obviously not entirely, but most of the jobs that come out of a degree like that are either in oil or um, you tend to be working in you know, some sort of chemical plant. It's interesting because the actual degree itself is really dynamic. You're learning a bunch of different things, solving cool problems. Um, but I found the job prospects that came out of that particular degree not to be super compelling. And so I knew in my final year of university that I probably didn't want to go down the classic um, oil and gas route. So I was like, okay, what can I do? And since I did an engineering degree, a lot of um, consulting companies actually uh, hire engineers or at least um, in Toronto where I'm from. And so I was kind of looking to see if that might be a more interesting um, path. And I ended up doing that. So I ended up working in business consulting for a year. I learned a ton then that was actually a really interesting role, but it was very um, you know, I was working f- with Fortune 500s. It's a little more corporate than I wanted, and I wanted to go remote and just kind of more uh, be able to design my life. So I did business consulting, and I think that was an interesting transition into marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that led me to the growth team role at TopTel. So that's how I ended up in this this industry. What was the thing that you said, like, oh, I wanted to go remote? Like, where, um, like, where did you hear about remote, or why did you? want to pursue that that path like where where were you like oh this is something i could do i i see myself in this yeah i guess it was was an interesting sequence of events over actually a couple years um i did an exchange in university and that was my first time really abroad on my own and it was like you know classic story i was like this is so cool i didn't know that this world was out there (laughs) but i also at the time as i mentioned earlier I kind of thought like, okay, I'm young right now and this is my opportunity to travel. And then, you know, once I graduate, then, you know, the coin flips and and I'm kind of stuck with a different life, right? Like I, you know, I needed to explore when I was young and I enjoyed that. But then once I, once I graduated and went into that consulting role, I really thought I was going to be in that role for years. Um, and that would lead to another very corporate role. Um, but I, was living in Toronto at the time. That's where I grew up. It's a great city, but it's not really um, where I want to be now. I'm not a big fan of big cities for various reasons, but mm-hmm. I just found myself in that role and um, living, you know, the life that I should have expected, but something about it felt very wrong. I was commuting two hours a day. I was like, you know, that role in particular was like a classic, you know, like 50 to 60 hour uh, week. And um, at least in consulting classic yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, I just kind of knew almost immediately that's like this is this feels wrong and it I just couldn't imagine doing that for the rest of my life mm-hmm. so around the same time you know remote work this was in 2015 um, so now many you know quite a few years later remote work is a lot more uh, popularized and and yeah, normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, even just back in 2015, there was not many people doing it. Um, certainly at the company I was working at, no one was working remotely. Uh, but a friend actually had sent me a remote year ad um, ah, okay. back then. And this was actually when they were on their second, like they were recruiting for their second year. So now they've done like dozens. Mm-hmm. But at the time, they had been piloting their first year and um, we're looking for people for their second. And honestly, I didn't end up doing remote year, um, in the end, but I saw that and I was like, Whoa, I, I truly did not know that people worked, you know, from yeah, these yeah. places around the world and traveled and could have legitimate jobs. Cause that was kind of a, uh, an impasse for me. I wanted to travel and kind of like design my life, but I also really cared about my career or at least, um, forming some type of career that I was proud of and that would lead me in positive directions in the future. So anyway, that was kind of like the first like, wow, I didn't know this existed. And I actually spent 10 months after that trying different, um, very part-time remote work uh, gigs to just kind of try things out, see what um, what I could get because I had never done remote work before. And I was doing this all on top of my uh, consulting role. Oh, okay. But eventually I kind of worked up like a very um minor but um i worked up a small resume uh, by that point of different remote gigs that i've done and i just kept trying i actually got a full-time offer from one of those companies uh, but it didn't feel right i felt like i was still kind of like trading off my career in some way and so anyway 10 months passed and eventually i found 
the role or I got offered the role at TopTal. Um, and that one finally felt like, okay, I'm getting to do this remote thing, but I'm also like, this is a role I'm excited about and mm-hmm. one that isn't really trading off my career in any way. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And I definitely agree that yeah, remote work now is uh, way more acceptable than it was just a few years ago. Um, I've also been, I, I think, doing it like four or five years. Um, and yeah, back then it was... Um, Maybe you you saw some like outsourcing or mm-hmm. things like that happen, but not really like on an individual level so much, I guess. Exactly. Uh, whereas now it's just it's it's everywhere. There are still, I think, way more companies that could be doing it and are not, uh, but it's already way way more than it used to be. Yeah, it's crazy. And even I've now been to many of the places that I went early on um, while I was working remotely. So I'm in Bali right now, and even just two years ago. It was so different now, like, so there's so many more nomads, which is, I, I think, a great thing. Yeah. Um, but also you're seeing many more companies be open to it. Yeah. So how come? I mean, I think like when when people ask me about remote work, one of the things I say is that it enables you to work the way you like to work. So if you like uh, big offices, you can go to a co-working space. If you like traveling, you can be a digital nomad. If you like peace and quiet, you can work from home like I do. Yeah. <laughs> How did you um, like? Did you did you want to travel? Is that why you went digital nomad way, or do you actually really enjoy? Uh, do you perform? Do you work better when when you like change environment all the time? So both, but it at the beginning it really was because I wanted I didn't want to be living in Toronto, and I loved traveling. I still love traveling, although now I <laughs> I do it in a more sustainable, slower way. But at the beginning, it was really focused on that. Like I wanted to be able to be wherever I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And at the time I didn't actually recognize, like when I was looking for remote work, it was really focused on that. I didn't realize what I think is in my opinion now, the bigger benefit that you just mentioned of just being able to design your time and your work ethic and how you structure your day more effectively. That wasn't a focus when I was looking for remote work, but now that's like the main thing that I think is um, like the biggest net positive uh, Mm -hmm. of remote work. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really what's enabled me to do all the things that we, I mentioned earlier in this call, like doing my blog or learning to code. I could have done those things um, if I wasn't working remotely, but I've been able to do them a lot faster um, and a lot more freely um, by being able to design my own schedule. Yeah. And how, um, like, how do you, deal with ergonomics like do you have any any problems because for me like i i wanted to have a like really nice standing desk and a good chair and like a big monitor but like when you're when you're a nomad you can't afford to have these things so um do you do you have any problems with ergonomics or um are you still uh young enough that you don't have to deal with that (laughs) (laughs) uh candidly i think i'm i i'm too young to run into any of those issues like in a serious way. However, like my posture is horrible and it's totally from working (laughs) remotely and, you know, sitting in these like non ergonomic chairs or bean bags or just like sitting on buses or planes all the time. Like I definitely am kind of setting myself up for failure in, (laughs) in a couple of years. Um, but I do see more nomads, especially in places like Bali where they're staying more long-term getting standing desks or um, the foldable laptop stands or whatever, right? It's, it's more of a thing that people are investing in, but candidly, it's not something that I've invested in as much as I should be. Yeah, I think you should start looking into now before you have problems because then it's harder. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. When it actually hurts to work, that's uh, it's not great. Yeah. How, so... Is learning to code related to working at TopTal or were you interested in like this before? Like when, when did the, I guess, fascination with the IT world began with you? So it was, it was related in the sense that, so TopTal, as you know, is a tech company. I wasn't working um, really with the product or engineering teams very much. Yeah, I, I know, because otherwise we would have known each other. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because we worked together without knowing that. <laughs> yeah, so I, I had some exposure, although candidly not very much in, in the early days at least. Uh, what it really was is the Nomad space actually has a lot of overlap with the maker space or like indie independent maker space where mm-hmm. people are 
you know, just taking their ideas and going and instead of raising funds or um, doing anything too extravagant, they're just building them, right? They're just building them independently and bootstrapping them. And I had gotten a lot more exposure to that as I was traveling around. I had met some makers who, you know, like that was their job, right? I was working this full-time job at TopTel, um, which was great, but they had designed not just, you know, their their schedule and all this stuff, but they had created a business that they could have full control over and it was something they cared about and all these things. And I was just like, wow, like over time I started getting ideas for things that I wanted to make. And at the time I really didn't want to like, just go hire a developer because I was getting, you know, dozens of ideas and every, Mm -hmm. every week I'd have a new one. And I was like, (laughs) well, it's not really sustainable for me to just like hire a developer to create this. Um, Every time I have a new idea or every time I want to change my idea of Privet. So I was like, really the missing piece is that I should just learn to code like all these other people around me. They are creating their own products and I wanted to be able to do that. So yes, the exposure at TopTal was helpful um, in the sense that it definitely kind of gave me the opening um, or exposure to tech, but it was really just being around other people who had kind of like crafted their own businesses. And I wanted to do that or be able to do that. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I guess that makes sense. Um, like, uh, when you get exposed to ideas that this is even possible, uh, I guess then you get your, your own ideas of what, what could be possible. Exactly. So how did you go um, around doing that? Like, where you were like one day, okay, now I, I need to learn to code. How did you find out resources to do it? Yeah, so I wasn't very um, formulaic about it. I just in the beginning of 2018 had just decided, you know, early on in the year when you set those like big new year's goals, I was like, this is the year I need to stop making excuses. I'm just going to learn to code because I had said I wanted to learn to code for many years, Mm -hmm. but had kind of just like in the back of my head been like, well, maybe I'm a little too late. There's already so many developers like, yeah, yeah, (laughs) not nearly enough. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And now I know that, but Back then, I was always—I had always just made excuses. But in 2018, I was like, "No, like, even if you don't want to become a developer as your profession, you should learn this." And you're just kind of like postponing the inevitable. So I just decided to do that. I think I can't actually remember if someone recommended this course to me or if I just went onto Udemy and read a bunch of reviews. I think it's the, the latter, but. Um, I just chose a course and it was the web development bootcamp course mm-hmm. on uh, Udemy um, by Colt Steele. And it was great. It, it was a full stack course, goes through like front end, back end, um, APIs, etc. And it really teaches you to build like a, a full stack application. It took me around four months to actually complete as I was doing it alongside my job and obviously like there was times where I was very accountable and then other times where I wouldn't touch it for for weeks but Mm -hmm. anyway it took me around four months to finish and then it took me around two or three more months to take that knowledge and like create my own application the first one um and that's when i really started to feel like more um like capable of of creating things on my own Mm -hmm. so it took a while but that's how i i got into it it was that course was really the first and biggest step in getting there and did it feel overwhelming, the whole thing? Because like we that have been in the field for a longer time, I guess we don't appreciate for like how much things there are to learn, how many things we just sort of learned just because we've been in, in this for, for so long. And when you say full stack, yeah, it, it's like it's uh, two words or whatever, one word yeah. hyphenated. But it's a lot of things. It's, there's a lot to learn. And um were you ever overwhelmed by the whole like thing, like the whole thing you have to learn before you even get something, even the smallest thing out? Yes. So like I said, it took me seven months or so to really get some sort of application out there. Um, and there was definitely a ton of times where the thing about code, which is great, but when you're learning, not so great, is that it's binary most of the time right so it's like it works or it doesn't work Mm -hmm. unlike if you were learning um let's say to surf right like when you're surfing you can maybe like as you're oh i got up for like slightly longer or you know i felt like i got i was closer to getting up you know what i mean whereas yeah yeah, yeah. development is very just like oh error or not right like the application works or it doesn't work Mm -hmm. um and obviously you can troubleshoot with 
the error messages, but it's still very like when you're first learning and you don't really know how to troubleshoot well, you do feel like you're just like staring into this like deep black hole where mm. like, I like, am I ever going to figure out this error or, or how to, to do this? And it's weird because after you learn it, it seems much more um, accessible, mm. but at the time it really does seem like, should I just quit? Like, am I ever going to get from like A to B to C to D yeah. and be like these other people? So there's definitely uh, a lot of frustrations and points where I wasn't sure whether I should continue. Mm. And there's not really great advice out there. Um, like even when people ask me when they're learning to code and they run into these things, it's just something you kind of have to work through, right? There's not really great advice where you can tell someone, oh, just do this or just do that, right? It's just something that someone has to work through on their own. Yeah, but you did the the right thing that I always recommend to people when they ask me, like, I would like to learn to code or whatever. Have your own project because then you have this desire, you have this, um, I don't know, motivation to to like to pull through, to continue. Because when you're, like you said, when you're faced with an error message and you don't know how to read error messages yet, it's just like it's a bunch of text. You don't know what it is. Uh, I see this sometimes like on Rails Girls events or stuff like that when they are just like, for me, it's in like I can see it in split second what's wrong. But for <laughs> yeah. if you're not exposed to that, you're just like, what even is this? There's just like a bunch of text. How do I even start reading that? But when you have your own project, then you have the the motivation to start googling more, and like uh, eventually you end up on the Stack Overflow question that will give you the answer to what you're looking. Yeah, that's what I. That is a piece of advice that I do give people, and I think you're totally right. Having a project for me was like probably the only thing that got me to continue doing it because I really wanted to be able to build it um, and get to that finish point. Whereas I do find that a lot of people are learning to code and they take some Udemy course or, or whatever platform and they do the course. And then at the end of the course, they're like, okay, what do I do now? Right. And yeah. even some of them won't make it through the course because there's no really tangible outcome that they're looking for other than like a check mark of like, I did this. Mm -hmm. So I do agree that having some, some sort of project, even if it's a simple like personal page that you want to create, is really important for you to motivate through some of those hiccups. So what was your project, though your first project? Uh, it's, it's this thing called Nomad Hub, which is still live, but I, I'm not updating it at the mm -hmm. moment. Um, and I don't think I'll continue doing so. <laughs> It's, that's the story of first projects. Like, don't be... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's very rare that a first project will uh, hit the mark. Yeah. But yeah, it was a... So these are these have kind of died down in the last year or so since I launched. But um, it was about... It was an aggregation uh, tool or site for um, some of those like co-working, co-living retreats at things like Remote Year, mm -hmm. Wi-Fi Tribe, etc. And it was basically... I remember thinking... Um, I probably, since I had been nomading for a while, I probably wouldn't do one of these unless um, I was going somewhere like really interesting or somewhere that I didn't know very well and it would be cool to go with a group. So I actually went with uh, Wi-Fi Tribe, for example, to South Africa. I was like, I don't know South Africa very well. It's very, it's just like easier. They'll set everything up and yep. it'll yep. be nice. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking like, where is there some sort of tool that can aggregate all this information so I can look at, um, you know, interesting locations or just the locations as a whole, where people are going, which month um, and stuff like that. So it was pretty simple. Um, but yeah, that, that was basically it. It was just like a tool to be able to see what co-working, co-living retreats were out there and with like different sortable functionality. And then started, I guess, your rampage. Like, <laughs> I, I looked at your products. There's a lot of them. So um, I, I, I would like to talk about all of them. I don't know in, in which order. So um, I guess you can go in the like in the order you made them or just like how you like make uh, whatever. I would just like to discuss all of them because I find all of them like really, really interesting. Yeah, I need to. I'm, I'm like, so yes, I kind of went on a rampage because I had finally like, like I said, it took me around, I think around three months to after I finished the course to like use all of that information and also kind of like reprocess it because sometimes you do a course and you don't really get it until you're like mm -hmm. building it yourself. Yeah. So it took me um, a while to do that. And then after that, I was kind of like, wow, I actually have the skills to go and create stuff. So I went a little crazy. <laughs> um, but the following month after I had launched Nomad Hub, I'm in a group called Women Make and they had done an 
uh, a 30 day challenge, which actually they're doing again this year, um, where basically people just, you know, choose a project and within, within 30 days they launch it. So I created a project called Make Yourself Great Again. That was tied to something that I, had, as I said before, um, the last couple of years, I was like a lot less um, efficient with my time and mm-hmm. just couldn't, I guess, create or do as much in my life. And I can see, could see that other people had been going through similar things. A lot of my friends were like, how do you do all like X, Y, Z? And really I was like, it's because I've one had the flexibility to like design my life, but two also like eliminated a lot of things from my life. I literally almost never watched TV or Netflix or, um, you know what I mean? Like I, yeah, I yeah, removed yeah. big chunks of, of distractions from my life. So I was like, what if you created a calculator for this? Just a simple way of understanding or really like communicating to people like how they're spending their time. So that was the 30 day challenge. It's like a simple tool where you can like on one side you have um, what I call distractions. And then the other side you have investments like learning to code or um, spending time with people you care about. And then you just like enter how much time you've spent in that particular week. And then it kind of calculates it and shows how that compounds over time. And then the project is also paired with like some suggestions of like different um, tools that people can use if they are looking to kind of repurpose their time in a more effective way. And it's not just about wasting time. Like uh, a few days ago, I read the World Happiness Report uh, for 2019. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, it's not just about like wasting time when you like they did uh, research on like happiness and like the the things people do. And they focused on on teenagers. So people uh, in like, um, uh, like, I think, eighth, 10 and 12th grade, if I'm not mistaken. And they like, try to correlate the happiness to what they were doing. And like, on and the top of the charts are like sleep, sports or exercise, uh, in person social interaction, volunteer work, all of that stuff is like, really, like, positively correlated with happiness and then like it goes down 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 uh and the, the funny thing is uh then they on the chart uh they display uh the bars like in different colors and the color that are like uh, on phone activities and non-phone activities and pretty much everything that's on phone activity is negatively correlated to happiness yeah and and you see like internet news video chat texting leisure time alone social media computer games internet all that stuff is like really negatively correlated so yeah not only you're wasting your time you're actually like making yourself miserable yes so completely i think yeah with with like uh, eliminating eliminating waste as you did you also probably improved your life overall yeah and this it's like a it's very widespread now and it's almost like a like a medical issue with society like a a mental health issue at the very least where people are like doing studies now i just read a book called digital minimalism which show just as you were saying like the um fascination or infatuation with our devices these days is really detrimental and we're seeing it especially with a lot of youth um who are like extremely anxious like that generation is much more anxious than the generation before them or the generation before them and it's really unfortunate and even I like I try to be very mindful about how I spend my time and how much time I'm spending on my devices but they're very powerful and like I struggle sometimes to to monitor that or really spend my time effectively so you can only imagine that people who are younger who are less aware perhaps of how they're being manipulated um struggle even more to kind of understand what's really going on yeah no it's uh... and actually it's it's amazing that sleep is on the top there i just started reading a book called uh why we sleep oh such a great book such a great book yeah have you read it Yeah. yeah so i have always i've never really had a great sleep routine um but after reading this book, I'm like, wow, I really need to invest in that. Like, I definitely have, like, <laughs> Same. not recognized how important that is in your happiness. And, yeah, and overall, like, health and everything. Yeah. Um, I didn't sleep much in, in high school and in faculty. And reading that book, looking back, I'm like, oh, I did so much damage to do me. It's like, no, this is really not good. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so uh, 
what was the what was the next thing you you built? I, I guess this is like since you were now already in this women in tech, was, was this like where you were, um, where you found the idea for the um, for for the next project, or I don't know if it was it was next, just uh, the female. So the next the next one was Unoya, which we don't need to talk about in depth, but that was just part of a twenty four hour startup challenge. So I made that one, and then after that, so. One of the reasons I kind of went on this rampage was a little bit of just timing where there was like certain events going on. So again, that woman make 30 challenge was for make yourself great again. And then there was this 24 hour startup challenge that I really wanted to participate in. Mm -hmm. So I created Unoya. And then after that product hunt does these, um, what are they called? Make, oh, makers festivals, mm -hmm. um, which I think started around then this maybe was the first or second one. Um, where basically they would just like ask that makers create projects within a certain, you know, certain uh, groups or topics. And I wanted to create one for diversity and inclusion just because I really, so I had gotten a lot of support from that women make group as a, as a woman. Uh, but I just didn't really see that many other like women makers or I hadn't really interacted with many. And I was just mostly curious to know, okay, so if I'm launching these like projects on product hunt, um, who else is like, who, how many other women are there? Like what really is the diversity equation? Mm -hmm. And so that's what prompted me to create Femake, which really was just like a, yeah, an overview of that. So I used the product hunt API to scrape all their data and um, just get all the data on, on who's launched on product hunt, like how successful were their products, at least in terms of, like <laughs> the upvotes on product hunt. And then I ran that th their names through another um, API that was, I uh, can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it was a, a gender based API where it would take the name, the first name okay. and it would output. Uh, so it would output a gender like female or male, but it would also output a probability, right? Because right. some names are pretty, you know, um, it could go either way. And yeah, so, yeah. but it's also the, like, it's a cultural thing. Like when I was first coming to us, everyone assumed I was a female because of my name ends on an A. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what I did is I took anything that was like, um, again, I can't remember the exact thresholds I was set, but if something had, it would also give in addition to the uh, probability, it would give it like an N for how many, I think they actually use legitimate names that they had mm -hmm. verified as like female or male mm -hmm. and how many data points they had for that particular name. So if a name had 150 data points and it was a hundred percent female, I would, I wouldn't check it. Right. But, um, I can't remember the thresholds again, but if it wasn't so clear, um, and actually I would probably should have threat my, set my thresholds a little more flexible, but I really wanted to get it right. Like mm -hmm. I didn't want to like report on incorrect data. So mm -hmm. I ended up checking like thousands of names myself, <laughs> like literally going to that person's product hunt profile, seeing if they were male or, or female or if it, I didn't know I removed them from the study. Cause sometimes they would just be like an avatar or whatever where you can mm -hmm. tell. But yeah, so that project, I went through so many of them manually cause I wanted to get it right. And then I, I kind of reported on the data. So how, like is there more of a presence of, of women on the platform over time. There wasn't too much um, movement. I mean, there was definitely some movement over the years, but it certainly was still, and still I think continues to be like not very high. And then I also did some research on like, okay, how does this compare to other industries? Um, and then I ended up writing an article about it to like um, kind of, consider why it maybe is so low. It's actually lower than like the percentage of women in tech in general, mm -hmm. um, which I thought was interesting. It is. So yeah, that was, that was what uh, the Femake project was about. And you, you wrote on that and I like your blog has a lot of blog posts. So you write a lot. Um, were you, did you always like, like to write or is this something that also became more familiar when you were more, when you went into the online world where everyone has a blog, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> everyone does have a blog. Uh, so I actually, this is a recent thing for me. I, actually really did not enjoy writing growing up oh. when I was in high school. It was my least favorite subject <laughs> by far. Um, I, where I grew up in Ontario, you had to take it all the way through school. Um, and it was the only subject mm. where 
you had to take it all the way through. And I thought that was deeply unfair. And I, I really, really just like, I remember, I think me and a couple friends like threw a party after we finished our like last essay in English class. And I genuinely thought like, that's it. Never have to do this again. But since then more recently, so that, um, that article that I wrote in conjunction with FEMAKE was really the, first article in a very long time that I had written for myself. Like this is something that I find interesting mm-hmm. um, and something that I care about. And it flowed much more freely, right. Than the articles that I would write back in, in English class in high school. And I thought about why that is more recently. And I think it's just because like when you're writing, when you're younger, you are writing about a bunch of stuff you just quite frankly don't care about and actually in many cases find like very painful <laughs> to think about. Mm-hmm. And now I've kind of, I always had since, since those days in high school or even before that labeled myself, I'm not a writer. Yeah. Um, and I also had labeled myself, I'm not a reader. And I started reading again a couple years ago too. But um, I recently have just been like, Oh, maybe I can write. And I've just been having fun with it mm-hmm. and writing about stuff that I care about. And I've been getting, um, I guess a lot of, of good feedback and people who are, who think my articles are quite good. So it's an interesting turnaround because mm-hmm. I certainly never thought <laughs> that would end up happening where I would revisit writing and it would almost like turn into, um, like a hobby or like a skill set of mine. But, um, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think it's also about the like the style? Because I don't know how it is in Ontario, <laughs> but like the kind of style we had to write in, in in high school, it was just I found it like very not I don't know inspiring or or like yeah. just I didn't didn't like to do it. And also it was usually based on the book that we read, mm-hmm. which was rarely the kind of book I would like enjoy. Which I like you stopped reading because I thought all the books are like that. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Uh, but you know, on on the internet, you're exposed to different styles of writing, different writers, and maybe then, like at least that was for me, like you find a style that you like, and then you want to write in that kind of style. Yeah, I think that's spot on, and that's the whole problem when you're growing up. It's like you're you're not only writing about topics you don't care about, but you're you're forced to write in a style that you think will be graded well um, and will be graded (laughs) well. Uh, And if you venture too far out of that, then you won't be graded well. And it's this like, it's just this internal um, fight where you're trying to like do something. You're trying to like accommodate the grading system, Mm -hmm. but it's not really how you naturally write or think or speak. And so that's definitely one of the things that I think has made it like much easier for me, not just to write, but also to write well, because I'm speaking almost, or I'm writing almost how I, I might speak or how at least the thoughts are, are being translated in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead of having to retranslate them into something, some form that I'm not comfortable with or not very good at, I'm just doing it as I kind of see fit. And that flexibility, like I, still to this day don't think I could be in a a paid writing role or at least a a very structured paid writing role because I still would struggle to to facilitate that very strict structure and to write about things that are handed to me you don't have to you don't have to that's the that's the beauty of like online no exactly exactly you can you can do in the style you like and i see a lot of people like they they get proficient with blog writing then they write like longer and longer articles even and then eventually they turn it into into a book and it's in their style and it's like you if you're a reader of the blog you'll enjoy it but if you're i don't know reader of dostoevsky you might not right <laughs> yes, exactly. No, I think you're absolutely right. And that's, I, it's funny because people have, because they've read my blog now and because I was actually leading a publications team, I think more recently I've been getting the sense that I've almost been like unknowingly branded as a content person. And so I've gotten quite a few offers or people reaching out saying, Hey, like, would you please like write this article for a company or would you lead our publications team or, or whatever? And it's funny because I'm actually trying to like, migrate away from that i'm absolutely gonna keep writing my personal stuff because that's what i really enjoy Mm -hmm. but like you said i don't need to (laughs) to do that in a professional setting because i think it would actually really take the joy out of it yeah well it might it might not like if you i don't know it it depends you know for 
a lot of us uh, probably listeners as well that are coders we do it for we do it for a living and it did not take the joy out so mm-hmm. if you like actually enjoy writing i think uh, and if you of course if you're writing about the topics that you care about yes like if you if you're forced to write topics that you don't like care about at all then yeah you'll you'll start to hate it but i think if like if it's in in the same sort of topics that you already cover in your blog i think that um, might even be like good good for you or like interesting for you Yeah, yeah, I think it's possible. I think the stuff that I actually truly gravitate towards tends to be more analytical, but I am it's it's just like a nice development for me to mm-hmm. revisit writing just like I revisited reading a couple years ago. And I think if people were listening also branded themselves like not a writer, not a reader. I've heard so many people, not just myself, who feel that way. I think it it's important for those people to also revisit it not necessarily as a profession but just to say like hey like you know when you're growing up that was like a very particular type of like writing and reading mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and i'm definitely in that camp as well like i did i hated reading i loved reading <laughs> yeah uh, but then like now now i read a lot so what was it for you what was the book that you were like oh the books can be good so i I still to this day cannot really read nonfiction. I mean, there's, or sorry, cannot really read fiction. I only read nonfiction. <laughs> Same. Um, and yeah. And so I think it was a little bit about that. So finding a particular type of book and I tend not only, but I tend to gravitate towards more like personal development type books, mm-hmm. but also interestingly enough, I find certain history books really interesting and psychology books. And so the book that got me, back into reading was still remains like top three favorite books for me is a book called man's search for meaning mm-hmm. it's by victor frankel and so he he lived through um the second world war and the holocaust and he was in auschwitz in addition to other concentration camps and anyway that book w- is incredible and it's also a good uh book to start out with i find because it's not uh very long at least compared to some other books and it's pretty digestible. So that was a great book for me to be like, wow, I really enjoyed reading that. And and then I have a friend who has a very similar taste in in books as I do and he kind of he did what I did but maybe a year or so before me. Mm-hmm. So he had kind of like a laundry list of books of like, hey, you should read this next, you should read this next and so he just started feeding me books that he thought Uh, I would like and I did end up liking and that kind of got me back into it. Yeah, that's great. That's uh, that's that's awesome. And w- one thing that's maybe not well, definitely not re- related to reading, but um I saw you do a lot of and you do a really good job at it. And that's just photography. Like you travel a lot and you post on Unsplash, you post on Instagram and and the photos are really good. So we're Did you did you do any any classes in photography? Were you ever like really interested in photography, or does it just happen? Uh, it mostly just happens. I took one photography class in high school, which was really fun, but that was actually more of like a traditional photography class where like we went in the dark room, and that was so much fun. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I've always just kind of had a lot of interests, um, and so being like artistic and creative has never been um, the number one interest of mine, but it's always been there. And I like um, photography as like a way of sharing my experiences or like, Mm -hmm. you know, like sharing where I'm traveling or sharing like what I saw or Mm -hmm. a specific moment in time. And so it's not something that I spend actually that much time on these days, but it is something that I, I enjoy and just kind of do, Uh, when I have the time for. Do you have a camera or do you just use your phone? So a lot of those pictures that you saw are taken on a variety of <laughs> devices. <laughs> Some of them, I have a GoPro, which has, which over time has surprisingly done me like very well. And most people don't recognize that like, oh, that photo was taken on a GoPro. It looks really high quality. But some of them are on GoPro, some of them are on a phone. I did have like a an old um DSLR that I don't really bring around anymore. And then mm. um, some of them actually are taken on my drone. But yeah, it's it's a huge mix. And honestly, these days a phone can take really good pictures and paired with Lightroom, which most of the pictures you'll have seen 
would have at least been slightly edited in Lightroom. Lightroom can make any picture <laughs> look amazing. But that that was my that was my next question. How do you edit and, and like yeah, obviously it's Lightroom, but do you take uh, use of presets that you bought or do you always go from scratch from like how do you how do you approach editing? So, I have I've never bought presets, but I have there was this one girl on Instagram that I used to follow that had kind of she would create these videos and I had watched one um, where she basically walked through like the different functionality in Lightroom Uh which I didn't understand all of it right like I knew like the basic things like contrast or brightness or whatever but you know how there's like specific sections like um, I don't know what it's called but there's like a curve there's like blue green red and yeah um, anyway so it's called curves okay great yeah so there was just different functionality in Lightroom that I can make a picture look good with that top section, but not great. And it's because I didn't understand what that kind of middle to bottom section did. Mm -hmm. And so I'd watched that video of hers and then that allowed me to kind of create my own presets. And normally what I'll do is I have a couple different ones that I'll start off with Mm -hmm. on on an image and then I'll just adjust manually until I'm happy with it. And yeah, when you mentioned DSLR, they're they're just too much hassle to carry around, especially t- traveling. Yeah, I I I have all the equipment because that's what I used to do, and, and it's a lot. It's like ten kilo bag. It's just <laughs> too much to carry around anywhere. Exactly. So it just stays at home, which is a shame because you know I know I could take uh, great photos with it, but yeah, I just know. Exactly, and honestly, I've been like that with my drone as well. The drone isn't even that big, but it's just when you're traveling. I don't travel around that much these days but even when i do it's just such a pain to carry Mm. around um more devices because they're quite heavy um but yeah i I totally know what you mean yeah which is why phones like you mentioned the cameras got so good like especially now with the new ones even at low light it used to be that like yeah in in low light nothing can approach a dslr and now with like i i have the new iphone and i went out to like a party which was like pitch dark and I took a photo and I stared at it. I was like, how? How can it? Because I know, like, I used to take photos with a DSLR in environments like that. And, and like, I couldn't make photo like that with a DSLR. And this thing sort of took it. I was just, pff, I'm, I'm still mind blown what they did. It's incredible. It's amazing. Yeah. And most, I mean, obviously, if you're a professional photographer, this isn't fly. But for someone like me, where I'm just sharing my experiences, like, most, like, people can't tell that, some of those photos on Unsplash are literally taken with a phone. Mm. Um, so I guess it, it's just easier for me to use that <laughs> instead of bringing around something a little more hefty. Yeah, and a lot of it is in, in editing, the editing, like you said. Completely. Uh, you, can, you can do a lot, a lot of things in, in editing. Um, and, and you can take a stylistic choice where really it doesn't matter what you took the, the shot with. Exactly. There, There is just one more thing that I'm like... Uh, wondering because you do so many things and we we touched to a lot of them uh, here but i think there are still many more (laughs) but are you at all worried about burnout or just like not um i don't know uh losing interest or just yeah i don't know any 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 of that that's super interesting and i've never been asked that before i think it's funny because people who are very close to me are more worried about it than I am, <laughs> as is the case most most of the time. But like my mom, every time I call her, I don't know if you can tell in my voice, I'm a little bit sick and I called her this morning and she was like, Steph, like you're working too much. Like you have to, <laughs> you have to relax or you're going to burn out. And I have other friends who are like, you're too hard on yourself. And honestly, like I feel good. And the reason I feel good about um, like what I'm doing now and I'm not afraid of burning out is because... I've managed to incorporate all these things into my life that are all things that I care about and I enjoy. I would definitely feel overwhelmed and like I would be approaching burnout if I had been doing all these things and I was just doing them to impress other people or I was doing them um, just to make more money or just doing them for some external validation or purpose. But everything that I do now, like even when I switched jobs recently, like I was. I was actually willing to leave my last job and ready to leave my last job without anything set up. And I happened to find a role um, that aligned, but I, I was very, very careful about what I was getting myself into um, to make sure that it would be something that I like really enjoyed doing. And it's the same with my blog. Like I've 
I've debated expanding my blog into other topics that people would care about or rebranding it into something a little uh, more professional. But I, I keep my blog at, at strictly things that I find interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to answer your question, I definitely think that myself along with other people need to take time off and need to um, be aware of like the things that they're incorporating into their life and how much they're working. But, you know, as, as kind of people famously say, like if you're, if you enjoy it, it doesn't feel like work mm-hmm. and that's kind of where I'm at right now. Which is the trap I've, you can f- uh, fall into, which, which I did. Like I said, like I, did not prioritize sleep uh enough like because like you i enjoyed all of the things i was doing (laughs) yeah and and then like you said yeah it doesn't feel like work you enjoy doing all of that and you know the sleep has sleep had the lowest priority because why would i sleep i was one of those jerks who said like oh i'm sleep when i'm dead like yeah (laughs) yeah so i just wanted to say that um um, you should pay like you are reading the book why we sleep so maybe you're better off here than i was (laughs) but you should definitely definitely get enough sleep so one of the things that i learned uh around a year ago about myself which has been really impactful in kind of like (laughs) like reassessing my decisions from more objective perspective is i learned that i'm a questioner so it's kind of silly to like label you know people into four categories but there's book this book called the four tendencies uh that labels people essentially into four categories and one of them is a questioner which means that i I don't really um, adhere to external accountability or pressure. So if someone's like, hey, like you need to go to the gym or you need to sleep more. Um, I It's just hard for me to get on board, to be honest, or to mm-hmm. like really like internalize it. Um, but if I, like as a questioner, I really need to understand why. But if I can understand the why behind something, and often I, like if, if it can be done with any sort of like statistics or like legitimate science, like I can get behind it, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons I'm reading that book, Why We Sleep, because I really haven't been great about um, how I've been like monitoring or like having a healthy sleep schedule. Um, but I want to, right? But mm-hmm. it, I've just struggled to like place an importance on it that it needs to have. And so that's why I'm reading that book. And I also, something that I do which I think is helpful is I track everything I do, like not everything, but like anything of (laughs) importance to me. Right. So anything from literally like how often I'm coding to how often I'm exercising or how often I'm flossing even, (laughs) but what do you use for that? It's literally just like a scrappy Excel spreadsheet. Um, (laughs) Excel can do everything. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I do it because you know, like what, what gets measured gets moved type thing. So I try to use that as like an alignment to like stay on track of things I care about. But then what I've started to do recently is actually so far up until maybe like a month or two ago, I had always just added things, right? Like, Oh, this is another thing I should track or care care about and whatever. And I've actually started to remove things so that I only ever have maybe like five max 10 things in there that I'm tracking and not every all of them need to happen daily but I always want to have like a sense of what the most important things are and hopefully after reading this book sleep will get (laughs) (laughs) on that list of like how often or how well I'm sleeping and then maybe certain other things will be removed because up until literally like a month ago I had been one of those people who thought like I can just do anything right like just more time or like more work and now I'm finally starting to wrap my head around the fact that one, that's not true. And two, even if it was true, it wouldn't be healthy. So I definitely think I'm starting to at least approach a more healthy view of like tackling all these things together. Good. That's that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, as I, I always do, I want to wrap up with um, a question. What would be three things that made a lasting impression or changed your life? And this can be books or articles or videos or whatever. So, like, what would be three things that made you who you are? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, so, I'll start out with one book that I think everyone would really benefit from reading. And it's uh, it's one of my favorite books called Give and Take. It's a book by Adam Grant, and it talks about um, three types of people. 
uh, givers, takers, and matchers. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of get a sense of like who those types of individuals tend to be. Givers, um, you know, tend to give without the uh, intention of receiving anything. Takers see the world as like a zero sum game. And then matchers tend to like give uh, if give with the expectation that they'll receive or vice versa. Um, There's not necessarily anything horribly wrong with any three of those, although (laughs) the world would obviously be much better placed with more givers uh, and less takers in the world. And we've all met, you know, people that fit into any of those three boxes. But what was really interesting about that book is that it kind of flips um, the concept on its head in the sense of what you would expect um, you would normally expect that givers, because they're constantly giving, would end up at the bottom of the totem pole and takers would be at the top. And what he found, interestingly enough, was that matchers and takers, like if you imagine like a bell curve of success, matchers and takers were always kind of found somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly enough, gi- givers were found both at the very bottom and the very top. And hmm. he basically explain that um, there's two different types of givers and the givers who can learn to um, basically like also prioritize themselves instead of just like endlessly giving and, you know, resulting in burnout or not really prioritizing their own goals at all. They end up at the bottom of the spectrum. Um, But people who are able to like do those things while still giving end up um, being the most successful in life. And it go, it's obviously an entire book, so it goes into much more than that. Um, but I thought it was a really, um, one, w- well-written book, but also just, like, really interesting way of understanding that, like, you know, people always think that, like, givers um, and end up last. Um, but I think that was really impactful for me to understand because I consider myself a giver um, and for a while I felt like I was giving and like, you know, like not really receiving anything Mm -hmm. in, in response for that. Um, but I have actually seen, um, over the last two years, especially like things that I had done in the past, like whether it was like I supported a friend or I helped connect people or, um, I, you know, worked on a project that had no benefit towards me directly have like all kind of like come around in some way. And, uh, anyway, that book was excellent. And I would, definitely recommend um, that as a, as a book. Okay. Um, there's another quote that I really like from Steve Jobs, which I think uh, resonates with just like how I've learned to see the world that is put up right now. Uh, when you grow up, you tend to get told the world is the way it is and your life is just to live inside the world. Try not to bash into the walls too much. Try to have a nice family, have fun, save a little money. That's a very limited life. Life can be much broader once you discover one simple fact. Everything around you that you call life was made up by people who are no smarter than you, and you can change it, you can influence it, you can build your own things that other people use. Once you learn that, you'll never be the same again. And so the core of that has really resonated with like my um, choices over the last couple of years, where again, when I was first uh, graduating university, I really did think a lot of the things that he was saying, like I... Like, I'm going to go and I'm going to live this path that everyone else is living. And that's just the way life works. Mm -hmm. And it is really um, empowering to recognize that, like, everyone has the power to design their own lives and everything in this world was made up by people who did exactly that. So that's another, uh, I guess, tidbit that I think is really, really important. And um, going back, I guess, to another book that I really think that um, would be impactful for everyone to read is that book man's search for meaning. Um, it's so Victor Frankel is, um, I don't know what his, the exact term would be, but he actually invented like a, uh, an entire sector or, um, section of, of psychology, which is called logotherapy. And it's all about as, (laughs) as, uh, cheesy as it might sound, it's about like finding (laughs) meaning in your life. And he, he talks about how meaning um, can be found uh, basically anywhere and you have a choice in, all, in basically every situation in life, uh, no matter how bad or how much adversity that you're facing. Uh, so he, he uses his story, which was him living through the Holocaust to kind of uh, 
cement the the importance or or the strength of of that um, fact or that lesson. But it's one a really incredible story where you can learn a lot about history, which I think is important for everyone. But really, just that that sentiment where like you have a choice, uh, you have a choice to respond to any situation how um, how like how you decide versus like how you feel like the world is um, treating you. And so I think that's really important for people to recognize and they can kind of get themselves out of negative situations or negative mindsets by, by simply recognizing that. Mm. Yeah. That's a very deep way to, to end a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Steph, thank you so much for your time. Uh, This, this has been really great. Thank you. No, I had a lot of fun and thank you for all of the really thoughtful questions. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I tried. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, uh, thanks again and uh, goodbye. All right, thanks. All right, this was my interview with Steph. I would love if you share this podcast with your friends and followings on your social mediums of choice. Retweet, like, repost, whatever. Every action helps. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, please post a review there. And if you use a different app like Breaker, Overcast, or anything else that supports liking your favorite thing, I'd appreciate your reaction there as well. You can also financially support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash That's patreon.com slash P-A-R-P-A-S-P-O-D. Or open the show notes and follow the Patreon link there. Thank you. You can find this show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We are at PurposePod on all of them. And again, if you have any guest suggestions, please let me know over these channels. All the links from this episode are in the show notes and on our website, parallelpassion.com 37. Thank you for listening and have a passionate day.